Hi, everyone. You're listening to the Ideas Ideas podcast, and this is Gaia Lampetti, Ideas Intelligence Reporter. Today, I'm joined by Gary Bond, CEO at Taisa Tech. Hi, Gary. How are you today? I'm very good, thank you. You good, self? I'm great, thank you. Today, we're going to talk about Taisa's work and its role as a bridge and connector between fintechs and traditional financial institutions. But let's start from the beginning. So what is Taisa and which kind of service offerings you guys have and how is your client base like? So if I, if I go back to its origins about why we started Taisa Tech. So Taisa is a, a membership business. It's the UK's largest um, financial services membership business. We've got about 240 odd members now, anywhere from tier ones all the way down to SMEs in sectors such as banking, building societies, asset managers, wealth managers, and those who support the ecosystem. So people like State Street, Pershings, those kind of companies there. And we, we concentrated very much on trying to build utilities for financial services. And Tizer's mantra has always been about, uh, yes, it benefits the financial services industry, but it must actually benefit the end consumer as well. And so Tizer Tech was born um, to be an innovation utility because we, we suffer this innovation paradox in financial services today where you know a lot of companies want innovation but can't seem to embrace it, mainly because of legacy reasons, their size, their risk appetite, etc. We concentrated this kind of proposition to we embrace innovation. And we do that via a joint venture with a company called The Disruption House, who provide a platform. So there are a number of aspects to this platform, which we serve up via Tizer Tech. The first one is it has 3,600 fintechs literally spread across the globe. And the second thing is, so that, that allows for a Travago style because they're all married towards a taxonomy based on financial services. So when someone's searching for it, they can search on a problem statement and narrow down the fintechs and look, use it like a Travago website adding filters, you know, so you're giving me all the fintechs who deal with ESG, now just give me all the ones that are based in the UK, now just give me all, and you keep on adding your filters until you shortlist. And then the real jewel in the crown is how we assess the fintechs in terms of counterparty risk. Now, years ago, um, 2018 to be precise, Tech Nation did some brilliant work with a, a number of banks, four or five banks in the UK, global banks as well. And they said, well, how do we measure counterparty risk? And that gave birth to the PAS 201 uh, 2018 standard. And what the Disruption House did was marry that standard to a set of Q&As and an assessment process where the assessment, where the fintech takes the assessment and whether they pay for themselves or whether the potential buy side wants to pay for it. And they spend about an hour and a half, two hours filling in information and answering questions. And that spins up a number of dogs, not going into too much detail. At a macro level, it assesses how they run their business. Are they sustainable in terms of you know, uh, longevity of financial management? Uh, do they have a strategy? How do they manage their customers, et cetera? And then on the other side, at a macro level, how do they deploy technology? How do they build, test, run, support technology? And you can use these dials, these scoring methods, to actually focus in on where they're good and where they're not so good or where they need improvement. And then that enables financial services organizations to get a perfect view of what kind of risks they're getting into and where they need to kind of focus 
their due diligence processes and their procurement processes. So it's a neat little tool. Um, and latterly, uh, we launched last month uh, the world's first fintech ESG assessment as well. Um, and yes, the world of ESG is still bouncing around, as we know, in terms of is there any concrete standards out there? But there are SASBs, their carbon trusts, their PRIs. And what again, what the Disruption House have done is married up those standards and again produced an assessment. But we have to view both assessments in light. It's not a pass or fail. What it is, is a, is a great bit of kit for the financial institution to say, going into this relationship with my eyes wide open, where do I concentrate my risk management? And for the fintech, it's about how do I improve my business? So if I know people are judging me on these standards, how do I improve my scoring? And that, in essence, uh, the, the proposition that we offer to the financial institutions. And then we basically added to that. We're saying, well, okay, what else can I do for the fintech? So we created two panels. All right. So Nebula is one panel where we have global technology providers such as AWS, Salesforce, R3, uh, MasterCard, um, Oracle have just confirmed they're joining as well. And what they do is they give heavily discounted licenses or sometimes even free licenses, but even lots of support in order to build your proposition using their technology. So that's Nebula. And then on Nova, we went out and said, well, how, if you're running a business, what things do you need? You know, So you need R&D tax, you need lawyers, you need a bank. And we RFP'd the whole industry, if you like, on these personas uh, and said, well, effectively, you know, we selected this panel which was there as part of the Tizer Tech Club to give fintechs these discounts, these extra value add, et cetera. So it's kind of a, a one-stop shop and we called it the Tizer Tech Fintech Club. Interesting. And Tizer Tech is based in the UK, but what are some of the other geographies it focuses on? One of the things that we uh, also wanted to do in terms of the global proposition, we analysed the Ron Khalifa report. We said, well, what can we do to help? So yes, we're a UK-based membership organisation, but actually this proposition should be global. And Ron Khalifa called for things like an international standards. Well, actually, if we, we could just amplify the past 201 standard as being the international standard. We can measure fintechs in the same way, whether it's a fintech from Chile or Copenhagen or Shoreditch. You know, they're, they're measured on the same way. It's a level playing field, which again is a first. Um, the other thing he called for was, you know, and Rishi Sunak's been very quite vocal about, about attracting talent to the UK, attracting fintechs to the UK. And how do we do that in a way where we're not just opening, opening up free seats on a plane giving, you know, kind of grant money, giving corporation tax breaks or whatever the incentives the government want to give, making sure that's money well spent. What we've also done is recruited global ambassadors. So we have ambassadors in the UAE, we have ambassadors in Latin America, we have ambassadors in Hong Kong, the US, Israel, and that network is growing. And that they concentrate on providing and facilitating this kind of fintechs who want to come to the UK, but also fintechs that are in the UK who want to go abroad. And they do this via a very strict departure gate system where they can test the market in terms of their proposition um, and also get business development meetings if they pass with flying colours through that process. Um, but the other thing, you know, I was quite honest with Ron Khalifa, is you know, a lot of fintechs do not want to come to the UK and therefore this infrastructure can serve that as well. So a lot of Israeli fintechs, for instance, want to just go straight and trade on the Nasdaq. So why should we not be able to assist in, in, that, one, in that manner? Sounds great. Thank you, Gary, for this overview of the whole infrastructure and proposition. And I would like to ask you, 
What have been the results, the sort of concrete impact you've seen so far within the network and the benefits that some of the members have had so far? Yeah, sure. So I think the, the benefits are, you know, science, there's lots of incubators, lots of accelerators out there. Okay, and it kind of we are mimicking in a lot of ways doing the same thing. But what we started doing um, is that one of our fintechs, for instance, who registered has now won a piece of business a significant piece of business as because they were part of the platform. So, they, you know, they were registered, they were, they were assessed for a big piece of work. So that was really good news for them. But the other tangible benefits they get is we do have 240 members. So what our fintechs are doing at the moment, a few of them, is they're, they're looking at the industry problem statements, things like why are people stuck in cash? And, and not, you know, going into the investment market. They're taking that as a problem statement, it resounds quite well with ties of members. So we're launching a program where fintechs can come up with problem statements and discuss those problem statements with our members. So it gives them direct access. So it's not a buy-sell thing, but it's actually a marketplace. Um, and we're starting to see traction now with our members are interested and say, well, I don't want to go through maybe a buy journey yet, but actually let's discuss the problem and see how innovation can help me. So it gives a like a pre-sales uh, activity for the fintechs, but also these problem statements are quite real for our institutional members as they stand today. So again, concrete terms, we've got a couple of quick examples. We've got a few also going through the international uh, departure gate process. Um, so over the next few months, we'll be able to obviously sing a lot more about um, those success stories. But certainly, you know, one fintech after, you know, being a member for two months has got a piece of business already, quite a significant one. And the others are now uh, having events built for them to engage directly with the membership of Tizer. So that's the kind of significant piece. That's a great start for sure. One of the main values of collaboration between fintechs and traditional institutions is that it drives innovation, it drives a positive competitive environment. How is that possible? And how does that happen, as you've been seeing now, connecting the two parties? Yeah, I think uh, for us, it's about, you know, as an advisor, take the advisory board, as a, we, we took the kind of, um, some of the advisory board are members of Tizer, and that was kind of surprising as well. So, you know, that was great. So people see innovation as a, as a, as a kind of uh, true problem statement in its own right, if you like. Uh, a lot of people have organizations that are stuck in legacy modes to so try and do anything requires significant investment to either undo or unwind or even just try and fit in their legacy architectures and build propositions on top of it. So there's a big need we see, and particularly in the world of wealth managers. Wealth managers, you know, and I think COVID-19 has exacerbated this. You know, wealth management was an industry of, of people meets people. And although it was replaced with Zoom calls, there was a lot of demand for self-service and self-directed uh, behavior in the wealth management. So we're tackling that head on. And I think, you know, for us, you know, if customer demands it, then effectively customer must must have it. Uh, and the wealth management sector, are, you know, they're all different, obviously, but in terms of their uh, how much legacy they've got, some are new, some are old, etc. So there's a whole myriad of uh, different complexities out there. But you know, that's a that's a true sector that which needs to embrace innovation. Banking's pretty much well-trodden path. You know, the battle of neo-banks versus traditional banks will continue um, and we'll, we'll see the results. And we've seen some tier one banks embrace innovation 
quite well and have some great success stories. Others, not so much. Um, but, you know, and that's because of legacy, et cetera. And what we said about these procurement and onboarding processes, if it takes three years to get innovation, that innovation is already dead. Brilliant. And to conclude, as we briefly mentioned ESG commitments, I know Taiza has a very strong agenda when it comes to that. So if you would like to expand on the topic and maybe also tell us how you help your members and your partners to assess and execute a better ESG strategy within the organization. Ties is very much member-led, okay? So we don't pay people expensive salaries to think up things. So everything's driven from our members. And you quite rightly point out that ESG is the mega trend of, uh, of our industry at the moment. Um, and there's a, but remember, Ties is all about the end consumer, okay? So, so our focus is around working with our members um, to come up with how ESG is going to be navigated uh, for the benefit of the end consumer. So the, the, the biggest thing is consumers want to know about the ESG-ness, for want of a better phrase, of their investment. So how we're doing that is working with our members um, through our technical policy council and our strategic policy council, starting on common definitions. What do we mean by X? What do we mean by Y? Uh, what then coming to common reporting standards, uh, which meets not only the regulatory objectives in the UK, but also the EU as well. So we've got to make sure that we've got this commonality because lots of our members are global. And we're standardizing templates. You know, um, customers can compare meaningfully between one product and another, and therefore it all relies on lack of interpretation and more get the interpretation common, get the templates in there, et cetera, et cetera, and then put that into the point of sale. So when you're a customer and you're looking at one product versus another, you know they're saying the same thing, they're using the same language. Um, and we saw this in the, in the previous um, regulation in MIFID II, uh, where you know, costs and charges was the, the last big thing about how do we report on costs and charges. And, and we did a great job working with our members and our members did a great job as well of coming up with commonality, reaching out, building bridges with Findertechs, as a, as a kind of European standard setting body. And that's exactly the same sort of cookie cutter formula we're following with ESG as well. Um, customers care about ESG. I mean, we're seeing that the whole groundswell. Advisors care about ESG. And as we're seeing now in the press, and we'll see more next week, governments care about ESG. So, you know, th there's a kind of a groundswell here that can't be ignored. And what we're doing is working with our members, but having our focus purely on the end consumer. And then for Tizer Tech, you know, for looking at, um, you know, in terms of if you're a financial services regulation, uh, I believe by the end of next year, you've got to start reporting on your supply chain in terms of their ESG-ness, then effectively we've got a great assessment tool, which they is divorced from the platform. You don't have to have the platform. You can just run the assessment tool and you can run these assessments against your supply chain. And again, I encourage FS firms to do that now. And therefore, because if there's any reds in there or ambers and you want to navigate them into a better path, then if you start that journey now, you've got a, long, a better chance of doing it rather than waiting until the deadline and having that oh dear moment. Brilliant, Gary. And I really look forward to hearing more about Ties Attack in the future. Thank you so much for joining us today. No, thank you very much. Thanks for your time.